In a few short chapters at the beginning of Jacob, the prophet Jacob demonstrates many of the duties of a prophet, including abridging a scriptural history of his people, calling sinners to repentance, speaking in the name of the Lord, and testifying of Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining us for Gospel Doctrine for yet another week. And this week, uh, much like the promise that President Nelson made about uh, the coming general conference, this week is unlike any we've seen before. A lot of changes have happened in a very short time. And I know there are many people out there who are uh, concerned about the future. Um, we've received we've received direction from our prophet that uh, normal church attendance is to be curtailed, among many other things, for a time. And as I've seen testified to and observed all over the place, uh, it, it does seem very prophetic the way that our people have been prepared to worship at home. So please, as always, if you have any questions about what we're learning in the scriptures, uh, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And uh, let's, let's have a dialogue together as we go through this time where we're basically worshiping, this is our worship, is to worship in the scriptures and to see what other people think about the scriptures. This is our discussion. So I hope that I hope to hear from you, and uh, I'll, I'll spend more time if I get more questions. This week's question uh, comes to us from Lisa Marie in Toronto. She's talking about the question that I answered last week about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. She says, You said that when there is mention of God in the Old Testament by the prophets, it is the Savior that is being referred to. If I am correct in understanding what you said, then two questions. Is it only when the prophets refer to seeing God on his throne that they are referring to the Messiah or Jehovah? Otherwise, other references to God throughout the Old Testament are of Elohim. That's the first question. Uh, So, no. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and the word Jehovah appears throughout whenever the prophets are speaking about God in any sense. God says this, when you see in your King James Version the word Lord in small caps, the Lord, that is actually their way of keeping the name of God sacred, but in the Hebrew original it would be what's called the tetragrammaton or the four-letter name of God, which is YHWH that we have transliterated into English as Jehovah. So the name Jehovah appears throughout. And as we know, in modern revelation, this is the Savior. This is Jesus Christ. So I'll go to your second question. If the above is correct, you are saying that this is the doctrine as far as the restored church is concerned and not that which is held by other Christians and or Jews. I assume no for the latter, since they don't recognize our Savior as Messiah or Son of God. That is correct. So for Jews, we'll tackle that one first. Uh, they don't, there is no identity between the Messiah. They do, they do look forward to a Messiah, but they don't see there being an identity between the Messiah and God. They're not the same. Now, for other Christians, this is an interesting question. What do other Christians believe about Jesus being the God of the Old Testament? Uh, it is not entirely unique doctrine, uh, Latter-day Saint doctrine, that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. And the reason is, that most Christians believe that 
God the Father is the Father of Jesus Christ in only a metaphorical sense. So the belief is that Jesus Christ and God the Father are one being, uh, literally the same being, and that it is one aspect of God that rules in the heavens, and when God subjected himself to the flesh, the flesh was the Son, but it's a metaphorical relationship, and that relationship between them is the Holy Ghost. So that is the general Christian philosophy understanding of the Trinity, whereas uh, Latter-day Saints have a different understanding. And so the doctrine of the restored Church of Jesus Christ is that Yahweh, as, as he's known in Hebrew, or Jehovah, is the God of the Old Testament, is Jesus Christ uh, in his pre-mortal state. And so Jehovah is just another name for Jesus Christ. And there is nowhere in the Old Testament where Elohim refers to God the Father. Elohim is a name, is a generic Hebrew noun. It's not a proper noun, meaning gods. And so therefore, uh, there are times when the word Elohim is used after the word Jehovah, Jehovah Elohim, which means the Lord our God. So you'll see that word throughout the Old Testament, but it just generally means also Jehovah. So Jehovah is the God that the Old Testament prophets have to do with, and they are relating to and dealing with Jesus Christ in his premortal state exclusively. However, as Jesus testified throughout his ministry, everything that he does comes from the Father. He receives the directions from his Father, and he is attentive to them. He obeys every word of his Father. So Jesus Christ gives the glory to his Father and also gets his direction from the Father. Uh, And he commands us to pray to the Father. He taught very explicitly that we have a one-on-one relationship with God our Father in heaven. And uh, as we talked about, the Nephites, when Jesus was present in front of them, they prayed to him, and he allowed it, he encouraged it. So that was appropriate. It's appropriate to pray to and to worship Jesus Christ the way we worship God the Father. Uh, And in that particular case, when he was present, they prayed directly to him. But he also preached that they keep praying in their minds to God the Father. And so when he wasn't around, the commandment was that they would pray to the Father in the name of Christ. Uh, And I'm not sure the significance of all of those things, but that is the relationship. Appreciate your question there, Lisa Marie. I also wanted to give a shout out to Sharon. Uh, Sharon, I I recently ran into at the funeral of her husband. And right now is a time for us, all of us, to fulfill the, one of the duties of our baptismal covenant, which is to mourn with, with them that mourn. And so maybe you could, uh, as you hear this, you could include a prayer to, uh, to God for Sharon's family who, who's lost their patriarch and by all accounts, a wonderful man. And uh, so I know that Sharon's a listener and I hope that this reaches you and I hope you know that we're praying for you and that we mourn with you, we're sad with you. And let's be sad with each other. That's what mourning means. So for those people who uh, are having a difficult time, let's be sad with them, not necessarily jump right in to solve their problems, but feel the feelings that they feel. And, uh, And then make ourselves available for what solutions may present themselves. And obviously, we want to be happy, we want to experience joy in the gospel, but experiencing joy doesn't preclude mourning with with those that mourn. And so I ask for your prayers in that regard. Well, we have some wonderful chapters in the Book of Mormon to discuss. So this this week's lesson is Jacob chapter 1 through 4, Be Reconciled Unto God Through the Atonement of Christ. And so we'll start right in with Jacob chapter 1. And so the interesting thing is that Jacob starts talking about the work that he's doing with the plates. 
And to me, what this called to my mind is a role, a prophetic role that is often overlooked, which is that the role of a bridger. So we, we know that Mormon wrote the Book of Mormon. He abridged the history of the Nephites over almost a thousand years and put it into one volume that we can hold in our hand. But as is described towards the end of the Book of Mormon, there were so many records that they would have filled up a room. And so Mormon had to read all of these things. And maybe all of them were written on plates, maybe somewhere on paper or papyrus or whatever the equivalent was in the New World. And Mormon had to abridge these, put them all on plates. And I don't know how they handled a typo. Did they scratch it out? You can't just undo it. There's no erasing. And so uh, that would have been very difficult. And Mormon spent years in this work, is from the best that I can determine. And then Moroni, his son, same thing. He abridged the 24 plates that went into the book of Ether. And Nephi, he abridged his large plates onto his small plates, and he gave the same task. Uh, oh, by the way, and as we mentioned before, um, the prophet, it's, it's widely believed that the prophet Jeremiah did this for the book of Kings, which includes a history of um, the Israelites from the time of David all the way down through the, the Babylonian exile. And then Ezekiel, it's widely believed, did it again for the book of Chronicles. And somebody did it for the five books of Moses. Uh, many scholars believe that Moses didn't actually write those five books. Observant Jews, of course, believe that he did. But whoever it was, it was a prophetic task and it was a prophetic duty. So abridging the history of the children of God, of, to, of God's people, is a very important prophetic duty. In my opinion, it is part of the calling of a seer to see the facts, to see the events that have transpired from a heavenly perspective, and to know what God would have us observe about the wickedness or righteousness of the people, and basically say, this was the choice the people made, and this was the choice, uh, then, and it was wicked, this was the choice the people made to repent. And only a prophet, I would submit, is qualified to make that observation because God needs to tell him or her. We have uh, records of prophetesses in the, in the scriptures as well. So this need not necessarily be a male task, but God would reveal to him or her exactly what is appropriate, not only to uh, observe about the people, like whether, they, whether a certain choice was righteous or wicked, but also what to emphasize. One of the things that I learned when I was a film student was it's impossible to be an objective observer because even on C-SPAN was the, was the common example that was given of a totally objective reporting of the facts of the news. And on C-SPAN, what you see is the congressional debate. You can just look at it and watch it without anybody giving you any commentary. But what we learned at that time was you cannot be objective because as a as a reporter, you have to choose where to point the camera. So C-SPAN had chosen that they were going to put their camera in Congress, and therefore that is what is appropriate for us to watch. Now, they may be right about that. My point is uh, pr prophets are, do not set out to be the way that, uh, the modern press might set out to be objective observers. Their goal is to be quite partisan. They understand that there is an eternal war being waged between he heaven and hell and that the battlefield is earth. And their goal is not to relate the play-by-play -play of, of the battles and the back and forth of this war so much as it is to convince people to join up 
and enlist in the armies of heaven uh, rather than be drafted into the armies of hell. And so this is one of the goals of a, of a seer is to abridge the history of his people and report it to show it clearly because some of the plans of Satan, they only make sense when you view them over a long time period. And, and likewise, the plans of God, they can be seen over a long time period much better than they can over a short time period. So we find Jacob in that role. And here in chapter one, we have some evidence that he is writing this considerably after the fact. The main evidence for that, for me, is that he talks about how the kings were named after Nephi dies. So he relates the event of Nephi's death, but then he talks about how the kings after Nephi would be named second Nephi, third Nephi, etc. That's the last we hear of the kings, by the way, uh, for some time. We don't hear about second, third Nephi um, doing anything, making any decisions. And by the time that naming convention has changed, uh, we're in the time of King Mosiah. This is after the words of Mormon, and we're no, we, we are no longer counting on the descendants of Jacob, which is what happens from now on, to abridge the contents of the large plates onto the small plates. So what, what we are reading in the books of First Nephi all the way through the words of Mormon are abridgments of the large plates of Nephi, which are a historical record, into a spiritual record onto the small plates of Nephi. Now, part of the large plates uh, were included with the Book of Mormon by Mormon, but they were lost by Joseph Smith. That was the, the 116 manuscript pages that were lost. In any case, the, uh, the abridging is going on. After Jacob, it will be his descendants. And we don't ever hear about any of these kings he mentions. But he mentions second Nephi, third Nephi, and so forth. In other words, uh, it may be more than one reign of king past Nephi's death when he finally sits down and records this story. And knowing that tells us that he has had the perspective of some years to, with, in which to uh, consider and ponder about the events that, he, that have occurred. And I'll get back to why that matters. But one of the reasons is because he needs to know, as a very partisan observer, he needs to know exactly what the long-term implications ended up being for the events that he observed at the time. But the events are, number one, he's observing the, the general state of the Nephites go downhill. And then all of a sudden, one night, he gets a revelation from God that says, Jacob, on the morrow, I want you to go to the temple and I want you to preach to the people about their sins. Now, it may be that they had a predetermined meeting and everyone was already coming anyway, and he had to change the content of his talk, or it may be that he called a meeting as soon as he woke up in the morning. Uh, this, the, this record is not clear on which, the, which it was. But Jacob the prophet, uh, first of all, he, we already know he's fulfilling one prophetic duty, this 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 role of a seer in abridging the history of his people. And then the next thing he does is he gives the, the Nephites the words of God. So this is a two-parter. He's calling them to repentance and he's speaking in the name of God. You, one of the most common roles of a prophet is to say what God would say. In, in Hebrew culture, that was the meaning of a prophet. So today, in the church, when we say the prophet, what we mean is somebody who holds keys, who holds authority, who is at the top of a hierarchy, and uh, who is recognized as the head of the church. But in Old Testament times, that was not the nature of the prophetic calling. 
A prophet was often outside of any established hierarchy, and he was called by God. Think of Abinadi speaking in front of wicked King Noah. He was very much not a part of any hierarchy. He had not formed a church that would be left for Alma the Younger, one of his uh, unwitting disciples. Abinadi was simply a man who had been called by God and sent to say the words that God would say. And that is the Old Testament idea of a prophet. And in that uh, tradition, Jacob is now appearing in front of everyone and saying, look, I have to call you to repentance. And as we'll see in chapter 2, Jacob says, thus saith the Lord, he begins between verses 23 and 34. He either says, thus, thus saith the Lord, or I, the Lord, say unto you, or saith the Lord of hosts. He says it over 12 times in those 12 verses. And he is making it very clear that he is speaking in the name of the Lord, one of the important duties of a prophet. Now back to chapter 1, he also describes that he has the responsibility to teach correct doctrine. And if he doesn't call his people to repentance when they are in error, then all of these errors fall upon his own head. And that is actually not a cruel doctrine. That is a doctrine of mercy. So when we read that, we realize God holds people responsible for the things that they know. I think we all, I think all Christians and most, most people of the world in general, they feel that God has to be this way. God is not going to punish us for something we didn't know. And yet, there are many doctrines in, in many mainstream religions, especially Christianity, where that, that don't reconcile well with the idea that God will be fair. One of them is the doctrine of infant baptism and uh, the fact that children need to be baptized as soon as they can, because if they're not, then they end up in some sort of purgatory or hell. Um, the, the Catholic belief, for example, that children go to purgatory. Now, we feel it. People feel it. They feel like this is unfair. If, if you ever talk to a Catholic who's lost a, an infant, uh, they're very, very hurt by this, and, and it is so painful. It's such a painful doctrine. And we feel that God can't really be that way. And so, part of that, this is actually an extension of that very doctrine, is Jacob teaching that if I don't teach everyone what God has told me, if I don't relay these words as God has given them to me, then I, the prophet, will be held accountable for the sins of all because I'm the one with the knowledge. So now it's my task to relate that knowledge. And as we'll see, it takes a great deal of courage. Uh, Nowadays, there's a common catchphrase, which is speak truth to power. And what it means is that you're willing to say something difficult to someone who can hurt you. And it's often used erroneously, in my opinion, because when people say they're speaking truth to power, uh, they're actually not taking that big of a risk. They're saying things that are entirely politically correct, and they have an entire society that will cheer them on and call them courageous. And it's not very courageous when everyone is going to call you courageous to say what you're going to say. What's courageous is to say something that you'll be excoriated for saying that you nevertheless know is true. That was the case with uh, almost all of the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, and uh, literally every prophet, probably, because God doesn't need to tell us the things that we find pleasing to hear. Jacob mourns in these chapters, he mourns that he can't tell them more pleasing words. But unfortunately, that's just not the job of a prophet. The job of a prophet is to tell people, sometimes it is, right? You, you tell them the pleasing uh, doctrine of, of the mercy of Christ. But most of the time, what God would tell us is that we need to change. 
Because if we didn't need to change, then God wouldn't need a prophet. It, it's pretty reasonable. It's a pretty common sense idea. So at the end of chapter one, here he is saying, we're under the reign of the second king, and there are now, oh, there's now a lot of wickedness among the people. Now here, here is an indication. I said earlier that I'd talk about how, why it matters that we would uh, have the perspective of time looking back. He's talking about how he's under the reign of the second king, and he sees these iniquities creeping into the people, um, to the people's behavior. Now, later on, we find out what that behavior is. First of all, chapter two, he talks about pride, and then second of all, he talks about uh, plural marriage or polygamy being practiced among them with uh, probably various other forms of sexual sin. One thing that we can gather by the fact they're under the reign of the second king, we can gather that that king is not Jacob, Later on, Alma, the younger, held uh, the, the, role, the dual role of head of government and head of the church for a short time. And then he gave up head of government so that he could preach the gospel solely. Stay with me for a couple of minutes on this, because if Jacob is not the king, then what that means is somewhere there is a king, and that king is probably complicit in the things that Jacob is talking about. And why do I think that? First of all, this is... Uh, society-wide. Um, Jacob later describes at the end of chapter 2, he, he describes how they have become a numerous people. I'm sorry, I think it's in chapter 3. It's at the end of chapter 3, verse 13. They began to be a numerous people. So we can do a little bit of math, and um, Jacob is probably a quite an old man by this point. So it has been, let's assume, 80 years or more. Maybe, even, maybe he's even in his 90s. And so how many people could his society actually support by this point? Well, we know there's quite a variety of uh, descendancy. Um, and so in chapter 1, verse 13, we, we learn that they are the Nephites are actually made up of Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites. So of the wicked members of Lehi's family, Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, some of the sons of Ishmael, maybe. We know that some of those descendants followed Nephi when he left the company of his older brothers because there are Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites that make up part of the Nephites. And so if you do the math, there might have been over a thousand people in their society by this point, 90 years later. So not a huge society, but enough, big enough where there began to be a division of wealth, uh, a difference in circumstance, material circumstance. So the first thing that, that Jacob calls them out on in chapter 2 is the pride that comes by being wealthier than someone else. And as Jacob says in this chapter, he teaches this, look, it's, there's nothing wrong with having material blessings. In fact, God will bless you with these things if you seek them. After you have a hope in Christ, if you try to gain material wealth, God will give it to you, but you will seek it for a different reason than you would before you have a hope in Christ. After you have a hope in Christ, the reason you're going to seek it is so that you can do good with it. Whereas before, what I see, I, Jacob, what I see among my people is, you're all seeking this wealth so that you can be better than your than your fellow man. So you're um, one of the one of the biggest. Uh, trappings of wealth that we see in the scriptures is fine clothing, especially in the Book of Mormon. They mention fine clothing. And so you're, you're working hard so that you can have fine clothing. And why do you have fine clothing? The equivalent today would be a very nice car. It's, it's something that people see. You want them to know that you're wealthy so that you can feel better than another person. That is entirely 
prompted by Satan. Satan gives you the message, you're not good enough by the way you are. Being a child of God is not enough. You have to be somehow better than everyone else, or you're not good enough. And therefore, you need material wealth. You need a measuring stick where you score higher than the people around you. And that might be talent. That might be intelligence. That might be family uh, family connections. It might be fame, and it might be money. And what uh, Jacob decries all of these ways in which we would measure ourselves against our, our brethren. But instead, what we should do is make them, bring them up. However, if we're on a level above them socially or otherwise, we should do the best we can to use our leverage to bring them up where we are. In verse 17, he sort of sums it up. He says, think of your brethren like unto yourselves. Be familiar with all and free with your substance that they may be rich like unto you. So he doesn't say that nobody should be rich. What he says is they can be rich too if you'll just help them out. Very interesting. Uh, Before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. So that's the first part of this uh, chapter. Then in the second part, he gets into sort of the meat of what this lesson is. And the, the, the real point of this is sexual morality, sexual purity is so important. And the, what the Nephites had been doing up until this point was to make decisions, not only as individuals, but as a society, based on lust. And what they had done is they had read the scriptures, and they had make it, made an interpretation which was that David and Solomon, we can see that it's clear in the scriptures that David and Solomon had multiple wives and some concubines. And therefore... It, that probably is not a bad practice, and we can engage in it if we want. And so they were, they were doing that. Incidentally, if you've never heard the word concubine defined, what it means is a woman who has a relationship with a man that is somehow less than marriage. But it is a formal relationship. It doesn't mean that the man has a mistress. It means that the, for whatever reason, the man doesn't choose to marry the woman, but he still has made a commitment to her to take care of her. And she, as would be normally the case in um, the Hebrew culture, she made a commitment to him to be faithful to him. And so it's one man commanding the attentions of many women and then uh, assuming the responsibility for their economic well-being, their care. And then the children are his. And so a, a concubine, though she were on a lower status than a wife, was also in a formal relationship with the man. So that's what a concubine is. Uh, so David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines. Now, we learn in section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants that David himself, God had sanctioned his, his wives, except, obviously, uh, the wife of Uriah, because she was already married, and he killed her husband in order to be with her. And because that he uh, went outside the marriage covenant and also committed murder, he fell short of his exaltation. He would otherwise have been a superstar, you might say, in the kingdom of God. And Solomon now, Solomon's a different matter. We read in the Bible that Solomon had something around, something like 700 wives and 300 concubines. And what Jacob has to say about this, we can read in verse 24. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. You'll notice he says, you and I, meaning I, Jacob, the whole first part of the chapter when he's talking about pride. But as soon as he starts talking about sexual morality, then he immediately says, thus saith the Lord, I. And when he says I from then on, 
He is speaking with the Lord's voice in the with the Lord as the first person. And that has I don't, I don't know that we hear that too often from prophets in our day where we hear a prophet say thus saith the Lord I the Lord say this. That has a totally different level of seriousness. It's almost Jacob's way of signaling this is the part of my message that you better listen to on peril of your eternal soul. In any case, he's talking about Solomon's wives and concubines. There were so many of them that it was abominable before God. And then uh, he goes on to make the point, look, I, God, I took you out of Jerusalem precisely to separate you from this very kind of wickedness. This led you, this led your people to the point at which they were about to be destroyed. I brought you out of there to preserve you. So it's not okay with me that you keep doing this. And in fact, he says uh, in verse 27, this is what Jacob said, and this, this is something I think we all should notice. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me and hearken to the word of the Lord, for there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. Now, why did this take so much courage? Jacob is not the king. The king, in order for this practice to be so widespread that Jacob has to talk about it, the king is complicit and probably indulging in this behavior himself. So Jacob is not just calling them to repentance, but he is absolutely commanding them that they have to change and that this kind of thing will no longer be tolerated. And he is saying this as an outsider to the king and to everyone else who follows the king. He is alone in this. This is a widespread practice, and he knows it's going to be unpopular. There are probably many people who are not doing uh, this, not engaging in polygamy, and yet um, there are enough that he's worried about it. And the people who are doing it, uh, logic alone will tell you they're the wealthiest, they're the most powerful, because those are the people with choices uh, to engage in multiple marriages. Those are the, the most economically powerful men are the ones with the power to attract more than one woman and provide for more than one family. And therefore, my guess is, this is my personal interpretation, Jacob is here putting his life at risk by saying these words. So I've often, in my life, I've often been jealous of the prophets for the closest that, that they have with God. Oh, I wish I could experience what that prophet experienced. But what we see here is that it comes with a price. Number one, he has the responsibility that if he doesn't say it exactly, if he, if he doesn't teach with exactness the words of God, then the responsibility for everyone's sins come upon him. And secondly, he's putting his life at risk. He's, he's probably never comfortable. He always has to say something that is going to hurt someone's feelings, and they're going to be angry with him and upset uh, for his whole life. Every time he goes out in public, he's probably telling them uh, things that they don't like to hear, and that's probably true of, of many prophets. Now, Jacob has delivered this message, and he says, he doesn't say it as, uh, this is a sin, you ought to repent. He says, no one will have more than one wife from this time forward, and you will have no more uh, concubines at all. And it's fascinating, he doesn't talk about what the consequences personally were to him. After he's done with this talk, he just says, many other things I taught them. So he wasn't killed. Uh, by the king, and perhaps even the king was humbled by his words. We don't know. Uh, they weren't so far removed from having uh, the prophet Nephi among them. He, he, he also says, Jacob also says in chapter 1, that they had many prophecies and many visions, and they, they had the Spirit uh, with them a lot. And so it may be that they just needed this kick in the pants in order to change. And if so, that's wonderful. 
But after he gives that verse, so verse 28, he says something that's interesting. I think a lot of people have stumbled because of this verse, and that's so I want to spend a little time on it. For I, the Lord God, there's that I language again, delight in the chastity of women. And this has been interpreted in some quarters as if there is a different standard that God cares about the chastity of women more than he cares about the chastity of men. Or in other words, that um, men are, have a harder time with chastity, and therefore God is, it's more serious when women uh, break the law of chastity. So first of all, I just want to say unequivocally that that is not true. Uh, sins are sins according to the individual, right? It may be that one person grew up in an abusive home, and therefore just to be a little bit nice is a great accomplishment. And it may be that somebody else grew up with all of the benefits of a teaching in the gospel, and therefore uh, to have a bare minimum of nicenesses or, you know, Christ-like behavior uh, is not quite the achievement that it is for someone else. That C.S. Lewis made that point uh, quite convincingly in Mere Christianity. And I think we can all uh, intuitively kind of understand that. But that is the only level at which this, the sin is different. It's not because of our gender, whether breaking the law of chastity is more serious. It's certainly not more serious for women than it is for men. It's just as serious as it is for us in our circumstances, and God knows how serious it is, and we know, and no one else. And I'm going to talk about why I think that. I'm going to justify that opinion a little bit here. First of all, there is no evidence that women are the ones who are acting against the law of chastity. In other words, Jacob makes no accusation that against any woman that she's being unchaste. The person, the people that he is accusing are all of the husbands. And what he is saying about these husbands is, you have too many women who are, and these women presumably are faithful to you, but you're not faithful to them. So why then does he use this language, I the Lord delight in the chastity of women? Uh, for me, what I kind of what I think is, look, Joseph Smith was translating an ancient record into English. And if you've ever translated anything, you know that you get the best words you can, but sometimes the word that you end up settling on doesn't convey all the shades of meaning of the, of the word in the original language. So it may be that chastity, now, uh, one of the meanings of chastity is that somebody would not have any um, impure thoughts, that somebody would not have any uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. But it also might mean, now chastity of women also might mean that women are being protected and saved for marriage. To me, my perspective on the meaning of this word chastity is that it is the duty of the men being the protectors to protect the chastity of the women in their society, to make it safe so that women can have a society in which they can have only one man who is dedicated to them. And when they live in that society, God delights in it. He sees it as chastity of women because women are being protected and are being safeguarded by the men in their lives. The men are stronger. Uh, and I, I don't mean to be sexist when I say that. If you look at history, that just is simply the case. The men are strong, strong enough to impose uh, their will upon women, and so they can either take the role of predators or they can take the role of protectors. And what I read in this verse is that God delights when women have their chastity protected by men rather than taken advantage of by men. 
It's a totally opposite interpretation of, I, the Lord, delight when women obey the commandments, whether or not men do, I don't care, right? That is not, in my read of this, there is no evidence at all that God doesn't care about men breaking the law of chastity. In fact, he's only talking about men breaking the law of chastity in this chapter, and therefore, he's not saying, women, you have a different standard. There is a double standard for for men and women, because there has been no mention that women have even committed any sort of sexual sin. If, if you have any questions on that, please send an email. But that is my take on that verse, and I think it's well supported by the text. I want to bring up one other parallel, and I think it's, uh, it's probably on many of your minds, because uh, he says in verse 27, Jacob says that there shall not any man among you have save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. Nevertheless, so Joseph Smith translated these words um, at some point before 1830, and then in the later years of his life, after 1840, he was living the law of plural marriage and teaching it to others. And so you would be forgiven for asking yourself, no matter how much you might believe in Joseph Smith, you would be forgiven for asking yourself, how can I reconcile this? How could he write this? How could he translate this? He knows that the prophet Jacob had commanded this, and uh, this is scripture, and he called the Book of Mormon a correct book, and yet, how could he teach the opposite and live the opposite? Uh, This is a question worth struggling with. And to begin struggling with it, I would point you to the uh, church website, churchofjesuschrist.org. And on that website, there are there is a particular particular sec- section called Gospel Topics. And the the original Gospel Topics session, section was was four essays that were written about topics that people had a hard time with, and were basically the church felt like everyone was getting their facts from everywhere but the official channels. And so they they made an effort to address the, those difficult topics head on. Plural marriage was one of them. And now there are a lot of essays there, and there are several on the practice of plural marriage, how it began, uh, what it was like to live under that in Utah and other places in the early days of the church. Um, one of the things that Jacob does say here in verse 30, he says, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. So there does seem to be um, an indication that this isn't an eternal commandment. This one seems to be suited to almost every time and place, but there might be some occasions when it's not, and one of them is when when God wants to raise up seed. One of the arguments against this is that uh, a polygamous society doesn't necessarily have more children than a monogamous one, which is true, there aren't any more women involved. Women are still born around the same 50% percentage. It does seem that those children who are born have being concentrated uh, in the priesthood families and certain priesthood lines, and also women having more access, if they're widowed early or divorced early, to being taken care of during their childbearing years. There does seem to be more children raised in the church in a polygamous society, and it may have been that was the Lord's goal. Uh, we simply don't know the answer to a lot of those questions, but that is one place I would point you to begin your uh, your struggle with that question. I know it's one that I personally also struggle with. Nevertheless, I think it's a great testimony to the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith that the that this chapter is in the Book of Mormon, 
it's similar to section three of the Doctrine and Covenants where God starts out by saying, the works, the designs, and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. Uh, this is a huge rebuke to Joseph Smith, and to me that is a very powerful testimony of his prophetic calling, that he includes this, uh, as, many, as many ancient prophets did, he includes this terrible rebuke from God that must have been so painful to receive in his uh, accounts of his revelations. The same thing is true. This is almost like one of those rebukes because this is a chapter that would teach against one of the most controversial doctrine of the early church. And this is in the church's founding document, the Book of Mormon. It is preached, specifically preached against. And so as unlikely as it sounds, that to me is evidence of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling because uh, he was willing to leave this rebuke intact as it was in the Book of Mormon and not try to go back and change it later to fit what his quote-unquote new plans might have been uh, around plural marriage. Instead, he, he knew the Book of Mormon is true and, and in an ancient record and therefore had to remain unchanged, and yet he also knew the revelations that he was receiving from God and that he was in one of these times during which God would command his people and therefore... Uh, it, it fit this, this verse 30, this exception that was carved out in verse 30. A fascinating subject, one worth a, a spiritual struggle, and, um, and also a question for which there, there do exist many answers and, many, and a lot of research. So in chapter, moving on to chapter 3, at this point now, Jacob has rebuked them for their sins of pride, inequality, and, and immorality. And now he starts out by saying, I, would, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. So this is him uh, being willing to give the lesson to those who are ready to hear it. And the lesson is basically that God is going to bless and protect you. Recall that as we've talked about the marvelous work and wonder that God is going to accomplish, not only in the latter days, but throughout his, his great plan of salvation, one of the messages that we've been getting in the Book of Mormon is that that marvelous work and wonder is basically bringing humanity to a point at which God can restore all things unto them. And he can provide this resurrection. And resurrection is not just a physical event. It is also a spiritual symbol, meaning that we will have good restored to that which is good, that we will have evil restored again to us if we have chosen evil. So that is a form of resurrection, is being brought before God and having our deeds returned to us, resurrected unto us. And so resurrection is both symbolic and literal. And that's the, that is the marvelous work and wonder of God, is to bring us all to a point when we receive our, our due. And it's not something, the message of the Book of Mormon is not that, it, is that this is not something to dread, but that we should live our lives in such a way that it will be something to rejoice in and that there is no way to get there without the grace of Jesus Christ. So that is what he teaches in the first part of this, uh, this chapter. Now he switches back and forth. He's talking to people on either side of this divide. Some of you do dread the great and terrible day of the Lord, this marvelous work and a wonder that God is doing. You dread it because what it means is it will be restored. All of the wicked choices you're making will be restored to you. And there are many of you 
who rejoice in that day because you can't wait to meet God again because you know in whom you've trusted. You know that you don't deserve any good thing on your own, but that you've been willing to place your faith in Jesus Christ and repent, and therefore that will be a wonderful day for you, that great and terrible day. And the truth is that all of us are both. Every single person could be on either side of that divide at any moment. And one of the contrasts that Jacob makes to illustrate this is the contrast between Nephite and Lamanite. Now, um, he says something here that, uh, just like last chapter, we had what you might think of as a, a controversial uh, doctrine. Here's another one. that it, so- it sounds in today's language, it sounds like it almost might be a racist message. He's talking about the whiteness of the skin of the Nephites versus the darkness of the skin of the Lamanites. Now, um, if we read this with today's eyes, it, it you you would not get away with this. Uh, let me put it that way. Um, if this were not a, a scripture already, you would not get away with coining this language today and comparing your people to another people with a different skin tone. So on that basis, it on the surface, it looks like this might be a racist statement. But if you read it, if you if you read and understand it. Uh, then you will understand, like if you start in verse 7 and go through to verse 10 of of Jacob chapter 3, you'll recognize that what he's saying is actually the opposite. What he's saying is, look, uh, you think that the color of their skins actually has something to say about their worth as a people, but don't look at their filthiness. And he, he draws a very clear distinction between the color of their skin and their filthiness. He says, don't look at their filthiness, look at your own filthiness. And there will, and and the one thing that wouldn't really fly today is that he says their skins will be whiter than yours. But if we ever get to the judgment bar of God, their skin will be whiter, quote unquote, than yours. Now, that was the way he saw it. That is not the way that we would see it today. It, he what he meant was figurative skin, not literal skin, right? We know today, and Jacob seems to have known as well that the color of someone's skin has absolutely no bearing on their filthiness. So he draws that distinction uh, in verse 9. He says, Revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins, neither shall ye revile against them because of their filthiness. So he he actually uh, says that they're two separate things. Their filthiness spiritually is not related to the color of their skin. But ye shall remember your own filthiness. And their filthiness came because of their fathers. So you actually have less to boast about because you have made choices that are evil. And what they have is learning that is evil. So this is actually the, the exact opposite of racism. It's just that it's couched in language. These verses are couched in language that would not be politically correct today. But I think we can deal with that because that is the case in so many scriptures, right? And what we can understand is that uh, the message of the Book of Mormon in many, many places is that the color of a skin does not matter. You can read that in the Book of Mosiah and the Book of Alma, that salvation is open to all regardless of skin color. That is a consistent message throughout the Book of Mormon. And so here, though you might read this and think that the Book of Mormon seems to be teaching that there's something wrong with a dark color of skin— Jacob, in fact, has the opposite belief. What he believes is that what's important is on the inside and that we all have to worry about our own worthiness before God. And if we choose some arbitrary measure of appearance of what somebody else, what their righteousness might be, then we are judging the wrong thing. It's our own filthiness that we should be concerned with.
Now, this brings up another point. He talks about how their, uh, their filthiness is because of their fathers. And earlier in chapter 2, he was talking about another aspect of sin that is spread across an entire society. So the Lamanites are wicked because their fathers passed the sin down to them. And, the Neph- and he says to the Nephites, look, they are obeying the law of chastity and you're not. They're doing better at this than you are. And you, you run the risk of doing what their fathers did to them, which is pass a sin onto your children, which could lead to their destruction. Who do you think, whose head do you think those sins will be put on, theirs or yours? They will certainly be put on yours. So the people who receive evil learning will not be held accountable for that learning. Instead, it will be the, the accountability for that evil will go onto the head of the person who taught it. And you're teaching your children this evil thing, this breaking of the law of chastity that not even the Lamanites stoop to. And therefore, uh, there is a level of sin. There's a, there is a, an individual sin to where we make, change, we make choices for ourselves and our own soul. And then we make societal choices. How does our society treat the poor? How does this, our society view sexual morality? How does our society treat sacred things like the doctrine of Christ and prophets and the voice of prophets that come among them, and the scriptures. So these are the societal indications of sin. And they have consequences. They have accountability that is paid at a societal level. So each of us makes individual choices, and we pay for those. We, we, we bear the consequences of those choices individually. And then as a society, we also make choices. And this is also a theme that runs throughout the Book of Mormon. It's more of a, an undercover theme. This is where it's being introduced. Here is where it's finding it's, it's fully coming into flower. This idea of the need for a, an entire society to be righteous and not just individuals to be rice, righteous, or else the whole society would pay the price. Uh, and so watch for that idea to, un, to develop and unfold as we read the Book of Mormon. Now in chapter 4, J- Jacob is done with his sermon, and now he's just making a note about writing scriptures, the process of writing scriptures in general. And he rejoices in the scriptures that he's writing and the testimony they bear of Jesus Christ. Uh, In verse 7, he talks about how we are shown our weakness. God shows our our weakness. Again, we have a uh, foundation for Ether 1227. Jacob here says, God shows us our weakness that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things, like obtain by these things, he means a hope in Christ, that we can work miracles and that we can receive salvation from God. He says that it is by God showing us our weaknesses that we can know of his grace. Now, there is another verse, uh, as I mentioned, Ether 12:27, that ties God showing us our weaknesses to his grace. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And my grace is sufficient for those that humble themselves before me. Right? So God does, uh, He, uh, the prophet, the, the Book of Mormon, it, there's another verse that ties these two things together. God show, It's not just having a weakness. It's God showing us our weakness that brings us to his grace. So compare and contrast. Uh, if you remember, there were some verses that we talked about last time. And then this verse, Jacob 4 verse 7, with Ether 12, 27. Um, it's not, Moroni did not pull that doctrine out of thin air. He was pulling it. It was firmly rooted in the early chapters of the Book of Mormon that he had read uh, countless times, undoubtedly. Uh, so an important doctrine there. 
in verse 9, we learn. Now, uh, there are people who have differing beliefs about God. Some people believe that God set the universe in motion. He knew everything in advance, so he put it exactly how it needed to be. And then uh, he's a great clockmaker, in other words. There are modern religions who actively debate whether God intervenes in the world. It's the, the debate about an interventionist God is the name of it. And this verse tells us exactly where the, the restored church of Jesus Christ comes down on the question. Jacob 4, verse 9, For behold, by the power of his word man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created, O oh then, why not able to command the earth, or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? God can, this is the testimony of Jacob, intervene in your lives. Why can't he? If he created the world, why can't he speak and the world would change? So this is the doctrine, this is the perspective of the Book of Mormon, that God takes an active role in our lives. And what should we do, therefore? Uh, Now, this is a balance. In verse 10 it says, Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but but to take counsel from his hand. So on the one hand, uh, we pray unto him with all our hearts and try to get him to intervene. And on the other hand, we also don't counsel the Lord. So you figure that one out, right? On the one hand, you're asking God to change the world, and on the other hand, you're not seeking to counsel the Lord. It is a delicate balance, and there's a real conflict there. And so you, you'd be forgiven for thinking, man, I, don't, I just don't know how to get it right. I don't know how to understand. The answer is, when you ask, <laughs> and, and there are other scriptures that talk about this, you pray for the Spirit to know that you're not asking amiss. Uh, Try to ask for things that are within the will of the Lord. And how do you know that? Try to pray for things as as inspired by the Holy Ghost. And you're going to get it wrong, and that's okay. Pray for things and be humble enough to change. And here's the answer. It's already given to us in verse 7. Let God show you your weaknesses. His grace is going to make the difference. So let God show you your weaknesses, and as you do, you will, your prayers will get closer and closer to his will, and it's okay if they're not perfect. Keep praying for the things that you need and the things that you want. It's wonderful because God does want to uh, bless you not only with spiritual blessings, but with material ones, as Jacob said, after you have a hope in Christ. So seek for a hope in Christ and pray for everything that you could want. However, um, I have a friend <laughs> years ago, who once said that uh, this, this friend was angry with God because of the way uh, this person's life had turned out, and said to me, he knows what he did. In other words, they were justified at being angry with God because of uh, certain opportunities that had never come into their life. He knows what he did. God made a mistake, and until God makes it right to me, then I'm, I have the right I'm entitled to be angry with him, and therefore I can make any number of choices according to my own interpretation of what I think is right and wrong. Now, there are disappointments in life, and we may feel like God has made promises to us and not kept them. If that's the case, if you really think that God has made a promise to you and not kept it, 
then you can't believe anything. If God is capable of lying at all, then you can't believe a word he said anywhere. The very nature of God means he can never lie. So if you want to believe in God, if you choose to believe in God, then you have to figure out a way in which he is keeping all of his promises to you. That is a choice that you make. Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord. Don't ever get yourself into the frame of mind where you say, he knows what he did, and God needs to make it up to me. Seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. Now, I'm, this is easier said than done because there are great disappointments and pains and sufferings in life. Uh, and losing a loved one is, is right up there. Health problems is right up, are, are right up there. And there are so many tragedies that can occur, and we can feel like God is, has abandoned us. That's not when uh, we get to make the wrong choice. That is when this choice actually becomes really important. That's when it matters. And it is a choice. We can seek to counsel the Lord, or we can seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. That's in verse 10. And in verse 11, it says, Be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ. So I want you to read verse 11. I would love to read the whole thing to you. But you may obtain a resurrection. Now, I want you to pay attention. As as we go throughout the Book of Mormon, when you see the word resurrection, I want you to remember we're not just talking about a resurrection of our bodies. We're talking about the resurrection that Alma talks about in the letter to his son, Corianton, where he says, you being restored to your reward is a form of resurrection. That is a theme, that is a, a recurrent theme in the Book of Mormon. So when you see the word resurrection, ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ. So it's not just that resurrection will be given to you, but You want the kind of resurrection that you have to obtain by the power of Christ. And you do that by counseling not the Lord, but by taking counsel from his hand. Uh, Finally, I want to point point out one more thing in in chapter 4, which is he describes the Jews. This is a, a fantastic answer to a difficult question, which is, why don't we have more information in the Old Testament about Jesus? If it's so easy for these prophets just to say, hey, look, we all need the, the atonement, the infinite atonement of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be our Savior. He's not just an earthly king, but he's a, a heavenly Savior. And we all need this atonement in order to return to God. Why was that so difficult for Old Testament prophets to teach? In other words, why is there even a division between Judaism and Christianity at all? Why would the Jews have found it so difficult to accept Christ at the time of his first coming? And we find that in uh, verse, mostly in verse 14. Behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people. They despised words of plainness, killed the prophets, and sought for things they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them and delivered unto, him, unto them many things, which they cannot understand because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it that they may stumble. Uh, He goes on to talk about the stumbling block, how Christ is a stumbling block, and he's the stone. This is a reference, a conscious reference, I believe, to Psalm 118, the stone the builders refused has become the chief stone of the corner. So uh, Christ was seen to be a thing of of no worth, but eventually became the crowning capstone, uh, the the most visible part of the whole edifice 
of the salvation that God would create. So that that's his message there, but let's go back a little bit. Uh, because they desired it, God hath done it. Now, that should tell you that God is willing to let us be co-creators in our own salvation. In fact, he requires it of us. And that is the nature of the message of the entire Book of Mormon, that we will create what kind of resurrection we want. What will be restored to us will be the choices that we made. Are we going to be the kind of person who counsels the Lord or takes counsel from his hand? Are we going to be the kind of person to whom God can show weaknesses? Or are we the kind of people who are constantly believing that it is God who has the weakness? Are we the kind of people who are willing to be corrected by a prophet of the Lord when he comes and says, uh, God has sent me with a message? It's not going to be a popular message. It's not going to be one that uh, the king wants to hear. It's not going to be one that is going to fit in uh, with what makes you comfortable. But it is going to fit in with righteousness, with the Spirit of God, and most of all, with the testimony of Christ. So that is the message of the Book of Mormon. That's the message, the powerful message of Jacob chapter 1 through 4. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.